You're listening to highlights of One Planet Podcasts and Business and Society's interview with Dr. Jessica Hernandez, Indigenous scholar, scientist, and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. I live my life embodying my teaching my grandmother instilled in me that no matter which lands I walked on, I had to learn how to build relationships with the land and the Indigenous peoples whose land I resided on to become a welcome guest. As a displaced Indigenous woman, my longing to return to my ancestral lands will always be there, and this is why I continue to support my communities in the diaspora. However, my relationships are not only with my community, but also the Indigenous communities whose lands I am displaced on, and this is the foundation of the work I do while residing in the Pacific Northwest. I strongly believe that in order to start healing indigenous landscapes, everyone must understand their positionality as either settlers, unwanted guests, or welcome guests. And that is ultimately determined by the indigenous communities whose land you currently reside or occupy. I think that for us who embody the spiritual relationships with our grandmother, it's something that cannot be explained, right? Especially in English terms. But I think that I come from a matriarchal society. It's one of the only indigenous communities that continues to follow a matriarchal society, which is different than metrilineal. It's like where women hold the hierarchies, where women also hold the political and economic powers or leadership roles in our communities. So with that, our women are known to have this more empowerful intuition, especially as it relates to our landscapes, our lands, and also our spiritual components of the being. So I think that it kind of manifests in the teachings that my grandmother instills in me and many other matriarchs instill in our communities today. So oftentimes when we talk about genocide, especially in the United States, it's going to something that happened in the past. But for many communities, especially outside of the United States, Genocide is something that can be traced to our parents, to our grandparents' generation. So it's not necessarily that long ago. So for my father, um, he was a child soldier during the Central American Civil War that has been coined a genocide by the United Nations just because it targeted indigenous peoples, especially in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. So during that time, he was 11 years old when he was forced to either join the military or join the opposition that was like community led to kind of reclaim back our lands. It was like a land back movement because a lot of our land was being sold to international corporations that introduced these monocultural agricultural entities like plantations, right? So we have these introductions of bananas, coffees into our lands. So during that time, my father, he was, you know, in his guerrilla encampment, he was 11, three years into that. He had built this relationship with this banana tree that was in his guerrilla encampment. So the military came and bombarded the entire guerrilla encampment because they were trying to win the war. And my father decided to do was kind of seek refuge under this banana tree. So instead, he saw a bomb kind of dropping on the banana tree. But instead of the bomb igniting and destroying everything that it came in contact with he kind of saw how the banana tree wrapped its leaves to prevent the bomb from igniting so i think that oftentimes when we try to explain that to western society they can say oh it's a bomb that i malfunctioned during that but for my dad you know there was this spiritual connection that he had with this tree that kind of saved his life and saved our lineage's life today. So I think that I wanted to honor that tree and, you know, kind of reference it in the title Fresh Banana Leaves because it gave us a fresh start and it gave my father a fresh start because after that he had to escape his country and eventually got political 
refuge in the United States. I think with the synthetic biology and all those conservation practices, I think that's important to get permission from the indigenous communities to introduce those things. Because oftentimes what I have noticed is that as conservationists or scientists, we feel like we have the solutions for those communities. But oftentimes there are communities that, you know, their cosmovision goes against it because it goes against their tradition. So I think that it's important, right, to go into consultation with indigenous communities. But yeah, there are communities that are already kind of doing that. And they're finding more of nature-based solutions that kind of resemble what's being done in that synthetic field of conservation as well. I think my vision for land stewardship is realistic, right? It's not going to go back to the way it was before climate change was a crisis as it is now. It's not going to go before colonialism actually impacted many indigenous lands. But I think with land stewardship, my vision is that the youth are also empowered to do that intergenerational learning and teaching, right? Because we often learn best from our elders, but oftentimes in school settings, we are only learning from the teachers. So we don't get that intergenerational approaches or relationship that's essential as we move forward, especially going back to the question as many of us go into panic mode. And I think that intergenerational learning, especially as it comes to land stewardship, is very important for us to move away from that panic zone into finding solutions and also finding those connections that are essential for us to steward our land. I'm also hoping that the youth are also more interested in going into the policy sector because we know that's going to be the ultimate driving factor that's going to make the ultimate decisions on how land stewardship is going to be moving forward. And I think that's through policy if we want to enact change. And I think that oftentimes we fail as scientists to, in a way, humble ourselves because, you know, science has been formulated as something that's objective, where we're not supposed to integrate ourselves or our beliefs into the science that we do. Otherwise, it's no longer science, right? It's no longer factual because it loses its objectivity. But I think that oftentimes for science, it should meet a middle ground of being subjective, right? Where we're also demonstrating that we're willing to learn as scientists that, you know, just because we remove ourselves from this experiment and it gave us this solution doesn't mean that it's the ultimate the correct answer especially as we try to address climate change we have to understand that one size doesn't fit all because you know we're talking about different regions different ecosystems different climate change impacts that are already happening in those places and i think that learning from local communities learning from the people who are already working on those solutions will be more effective, but that will also take a lot of unlearning and relearning for us so that we can be open to those changes and, you know, to furthering our conversation. I think it's having that intergenerational teachings and relationships, right? Because we all learn something from our grandparents and how do we instill that so that once we become, you know, grandparents ourselves or elders ourselves, or we pass on, how do we still hold on to have that impact right on the younger generation? So I think it's always thinking of ourselves as we're going to become an ancestor, we're going to become an elder, and how do we bring forward those teachings that were taught to us so that they're not lost, especially as we continue to face all these, basically these um, turmoils, right? Because the pandemic hasn't been easy for any of us. And how do we bring that forward, especially as we are still facing climate change on top of the pandemic and water crises are happening in cities where there's vulnerable populations and how do we move forward with those teachings? For me, it's just looking at the pictures of my grandparents because, you know, 
one of the teachings that have always been instilled in me is that when we cry, we're actually crying for them because many of them weren't given the time or the space to cry. So I think it's in a way I embody that sometimes even through just crying because many of them had to be strong all of their lives to continue on. And how do we cry so that they can also be relieved from some of the suffering that they actually faced during that time. So for me, it's just going into crying to kind of heal them as I heal myself as well. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in the Creative Process or One Planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.